I'm back at, at Bristol um, talking to Colin Pillinger, um, who's been quite involved in the uh, British uh, space programme, I believe. Um, welcome. Uh, good day to you. Nice to be back in Bristol. <laughs> you say back in Bristol. Uh, you're familiar with the city then? I was actually born here, so uh, you could say I was familiar with the city. I also spent... Uh, uh, Eight years here in the end of the 1960s and during the 1970s. Okay, now you've you've been involved in the um, British Space Programme um, for for how long and, and what sort of role, may I ask? Well, I actually joined the Space Programme by coming to Bristol University in 1968 when we worked on the Apollo Programme, and I spent eight here, years here working on the Apollo Programme. Moved on to Cambridge University where I worked mainly on meteorites, and then in the early 80s I moved to the Open University when they made me an offer I couldn't refuse and gave me my own lab, which in the ensuing 20 years has turned into a department of 70 people working on space programs. Okay, and may I ask, um, you're back in Bristol now um, at the at Bristol Science Centre, what's the purpose of your visit today? Well, last Thursday was the 50th anniversary of the launch of Sputnik, which started the space program. Uh, it started a space race, which uh, uh, almost culminated with the Apollo program. But there's a new space race going on now. It's an economic space race, and space is used as a motivational and inspirational idea to get young people to do science and technology. Yes, of course, and um, a very worthy thing as a, an inspirational tool it is. Um, and uh, you're here to commemorate that. Uh, what What is your role in the in the commemoration? I'm giving today. I'm going to give a talk of a short talk, sort of uh, reminiscing about uh, a variety of things that happened in that 50 years, using uh, cartoons as a vehicle to. Uh, interest people so that they, they laugh at the jokes but they hear the serious side of the exploration program and of course I'm promoting a book that I've written called Space is a Funny Place. Right, getting the plug in there I see. <laughs> um, now you say reminiscing, can I ask you where your interest in space and the space program specifically began? Well I've been involved in an awful lot of things. I've been involved in the moon I've been involved in Mars, I've been involved in comets and meteorites. Uh, people who work in the, the group I founded uh, were involved in the landing on Titan. Uh, we have people there who are interested in uh, small impacts, tiny particles, uh, meteors, as you know them, that squeak across the sky at night. We also have people who are interested in big acts, impacts, the asteroidal-sized things that kill the dinosaurs. So. If uh, you want any information on any of those subjects, I think I can uh, muddle through, shall we say. Now, I'm going to go on to perhaps a slightly sensitive subject here. You mentioned Mars. Um, the nation probably would recognise you as the one who had to tell us all that Beagle 2 um, was not operational as expected. Um, Obviously, that wasn't an ideal situation. Can you just take me back over the idea of the Beagle 2 programme, what it should have achieved, how you're hoping to move on from that, and where the British Space Programme, as far as scientific research and so on, is going now? Well, Beagle 2 was an idea about detecting life on Mars. 
if we could find life on Mars, past or present, then we would recognize that life on Earth is not unique. And that would be a stepping stone to knowing we're not alone in the universe. Beagle had a, an experiment which could, uh, which actually was used on Earth to show that life on Earth began four billion years ago. So it's a prime experiment for seeing whether there was or is life on Mars. When Beagle didn't call in, then this is not unusual in space missions. Two-thirds of all missions to Mars have uh, never produced any data, and a lot more missions to Mars have never even got off the drawing board because it's a very difficult thing to do to get to Mars. Uh, we have to move on from that. It's still uh, an open question. Britain will be involved in Mars exploration in the future. It's involved in the European Space Agency program. However, to my mind, the European Space Agency's program isn't working very quickly. They uh, won't get to Mars until 2015. Now, to me, that means a whole... A child who was five and was fascinated by Beagle 2 will be 18 by the time uh, ESA repeats anything that we were going to do with Beagle 2. If you've got to be inspirational and motivational, you've got to be faster than that. I have used, I've begun to look at the possibility of uh, using Beagle technology to go back to the moon, to prospect for water as a means of uh, finding out whether it's conceivable to set up a permanent base at the Lunar South Pole. And this is work which I'm now uh, investigating with NASA. We don't have the promise of any mission, but if we could... Uh, show that our instruments are suitable and that they are ready, what we call in space, qualified to go on a mission, then we would be ready if the, if the opportunity arose. You talk about the, the possibility of um, NASA, ESA, the British program, a combination of them collaborating on a, a permanent base on an, another um, world, as it were, certainly not on Earth or, or um, directly in orbit like the space station is. Um, what do you think the merits of such a base would be? Well, first of all, there isn't any guarantee that Britain would participate. I'm participating as an individual. Uh, Britain has shied away from manned space program. They always believed it to be too expensive and prefer to do have robots. But there are just so many things that men can do that robots can't, but equally so there are things that robots can do which are too dangerous for men. A good balanced space program involves both robots and men. If you can set up a permanent base on the moon then you can explore all manner of things that uh, you know you just simply can't do on a, you know, if you're there for a day or two and come back again. And there are certainly quite a lot of medical things that uh, medical conditions that you can study such as uh, uh, osteoporosis, you know, bone weight loss in space rapidly. On Earth you have to wait for the person who's got it to degenerate. On In space this happens in a matter of months so it's a sort of a, a you concertina the experiment up incredibly. And this isn't the only uh, time when uh, space and medicine meet. Uh, we built an instrument to look for life on Mars. That instrument is now being adapted for the purposes of testing rapid uh, screening of people for TB. That's work which we're going to be doing in Africa over the next two years. If we can get instantaneous diagnoses of, uh, of clinical conditions, then we can offer immediate treatment. 
and all too frequently people studying uh, suffering from disease in, in Africa you know they are almost dead before you know the treatment and the diagnosis is uh, you know comes into into play and you talk about all the sort of peripheral benefits of the space program um, there but can, can I ask you um, what do you personally believe has been the greatest achievement of the British space program and then as of the program worldwide I think you'd have to say the highlight of Britain's activities was Beagle 2 without even though it didn't send any information because Beagle coordinated all the uh, industries or the all the industrial players in Britain and it also got all the universities who were interested in space exploration all working in a unified way on a single project it demonstrates that you can do uh, space missions smaller faster cheaper as regards the uh, the rest of the world I believe that probably uh, uh, landing a man on the moon has to be the uh, you know the the main thing that uh, anybody could look at and say uh, gosh this was a fantastic achievement but landing a man on the moon despite the fact that he was underpinned by uh, uh, a race for military dominance it in fact demonstrates that uh, competition is the way to achieve major goals and you asked earlier about uh, collaboration I don't believe that people should all collaborate on single projects I believe that there ought to be at least one or two people competing because by competing you get the best out of people Beagle in a way actually got the best out of NASA because NASA couldn't afford to let Beagle get to Mars when they had two missions going which were funded to the a level of ten times what we had they could not afford to show that a couple of guys with a, an anorak and a, you know, a woolly jumper could do this so we put them on their metal so I take a little bit of credit for the achievements of the, the Mer rovers but I presume you're not trying to implicate anyone at NASA for the failure of Beagle 2 no ab absolutely not because uh, we couldn't have uh, wished for better collaborators from NASA as well as competitors uh, when we needed uh, somebody to listen for our radio signal NASA were the first people to volunteer they stayed up all Christmas 2003 they carried on the search for Beagle into March listening for its radio signal they have carried on taking pictures of Mars trying to find evidence of Beagle on the surface and as I've already said to you there clearly is uh, no animosity between us because they recognize that uh, Beagle may contribute to their their lunar endeavors so uh, yes we can compete but we can be uh, you know we can be friends too do you have any evidence to support any particular theory as to why Beagle 2 didn't start transmitting as expected? The only thing that we can say which you, you can absolutely demonstrate is that we didn't choose the best time to land on Mars. And by that I mean we landed at the end of what's called the dust storm season. On Mars dusts get whipped up into the atmosphere uh, by very ferocious winds at a particular time of the year when the dust gets into the atmosphere which is already thin it's only 160th of earth so it's a very 
meagre atmosphere. When the dust gets into the atmosphere, it heats up the atmosphere. The atmosphere becomes even more turbulent and more dusty. It, this was the situation when we tried to land. Likewise, at the time of the day we chose, if you really want the quietest time of the day, you everybody knows just before dawn, we tried to land in the middle of the afternoon when it was warm. So a th already thin atmosphere was even thinner. If you're going to try and parachute through something which is as low density as the atmosphere of Mars, then you have to have everything working in your favour. We now know that that wasn't the best time to do it. We now know that one of the reasons why European Space Agency won't go into 2015 is to avoid such circumstances. You know, you learn by your mistakes. If you do something that uh, uh, you know is going to work and it works, you've learned nothing. If you do something which is an experiment, you gain experience and you become an expert. We could tell you how we think it should be done better. Okay. And just a more general question. I know that um, NASA are desperately trying to get the, the, their portions of the um, International Space Station uh, assembled whilst the shuttles are still in service. But I gather that ESA are working on a possible, not quite replacement for the space shuttle, but a vehicle of a similar sort that could be reused, unlike um, conventional rockets. Where do you lie on that? Do you think that reusable craft are a good idea? I think hindsight, which is always a marvellous thing, has told us that shuttle wasn't the way to go. Uh, it's NASA that are going to replace shuttle with what they call the crew exploration vehicle, which not only uh, uh, is uh, going to be something which is probably more reliable because it's new every time, it also has the, uh, the added value of there's an escape system. So you can make sure that your astronauts are have the facility to get off the launcher if anything goes wrong. Uh, we know about the way in which astronauts come back to Earth uh, via rocket-type launches because that was done successfully quite a number of times during the Apollo program. And it is rather simpler when you have a small vehicle with a small heat shield rather than a very large, complicated thing that looks like an aeroplane. So I think shuttle was a mistake, but uh, you know, at the time it seemed like a good idea. And you think that's a problem with the concept rather than the specific of that particular model? I think it's a bit like one of these things that uh, you developed one and since everybody has recognised it's, uh, uh, it's not the way to go. The Russians abandoned theirs. Uh, everybody's realised it's not the way to go. There hasn't been very much further development of it it might still prove in the long run, and probably it will still prove in the long run, when you get uh, commercial involvement such as uh, Branson and so on and so forth. That might be the way to go. Okay. And just one final question. Can I ask you, where do you see the global space program and man in space in 100 years' time? I think it's inevitable there'll be a lot more countries involved in it. Quite clearly, Japan, China, India... Uh, all those countries in, in in Asia and the Far East are interest, interested. I think Britain should make a major investment. And I think we should be big players in, in this because we have the skilled technical people. We actually are a relatively rich nation. We don't invest enough in space. Uh, the money you invest in space is not wasted. It's all spent here on Earth. But it does have this inspirational and motivational 
aspect to it which brings people into science and technology i think that's the way we ought to be going in 100 years from now who knows we didn't predict the mobile telephone we didn't predict global positioning we didn't predict a lot of things but uh, they come about and it's very difficult to prove what you know predict what technology will bring in 100 years on burstradio.org.uk this is featured first